How do you find it when you're faced, confronted by familiar, famous words? Sometimes they can just wash over us, can't they? They lose the power, perhaps, that they once had. At other times, we're so familiar with them and one way of approaching and understanding them that we can hear nothing but that one message. This morning, we have over in Llandabia, Stefan Morris joining us. Stefan and Gweno, you may remember, were a part of our church for a period some time ago. They left to plant a church, Fanon Llandisil, uh, a number of years ago. And they're coming back close to um, St. David's Day to share about that and something else that they're involved in. Cant Igamri. We've seen a video already of it this morning. And uh, as Stefan is going to be coming and sharing and Gweno about that, I thought it would be a really great opportunity for us to visit perhaps some really familiar words to some, but to think about them and to, to try and hear them and to understand them in a new way. Isaiah chapter 6 is a portion of Isaiah that is often picked up and preached or picked up and declared an invitation for folks to come and to see God and his splendour and to respond. Maybe you've never heard these words before, maybe you've heard them a thousand times before, but let's pray, let's ask God that he would help these words land with us this morning. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful. We thank you that it is full. We thank you that it is fruitful. You declare your word does not go out and return to you void, but it, it achieves that thing which you send it out to do. So we pray this morning in our midst, even online, as we gather in Jesus' name with hearts that are open, eyes that are open, Lord, ears that are open, that we would be receptive to what it is that you can say to us today through your words here in Isaiah chapter 6. Amen. Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 and we'll read down to verse 8 I think. In the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, with two they were flying and they were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said this, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. Then, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. 
there are different portions of that passage which people tend to focus in on. And by the end of our time together this morning, I want us to have considered that last question and answer. The Lord asking the question, whom shall I send? Isaiah standing up and affirming, Lord, you can send me on your mission. You can send me as your mouthpiece. But before we get there, it's worth us considering what has happened to Isaiah. What has happened to him so that he can be this person who responds to God, yes, Lord, I can and I want to go where you will send me. Well, the first thing that's happened to Isaiah is this, isn't it? He has seen something of how great God is. He has seen something of how great God is. There's lots in this passage that you can focus on. There's lots on this passage that you can enthuse on. I've sat and I've heard teaching, I've heard sermons on just how large and magnificent God must be such that when Isaiah describes him, it's simply the train of his robe that he describes. How mind-boggling is that? That he has this vision of God there before him and it's enough to make a comment about the train, the very edge of his robes. How big must God be? Others have commented on, well, what do the seraphim reveal? What do they sing about God? What is it that they're highlighting? Holy, holy, holy. The separateness of God, the grandeur of God. The whole earth is filled with his glory. We could preach sermons on that, couldn't we? The otherness of God, the glory of God, the weight of God, the value, the worth of God. But I want us perhaps just to spend a couple of moments this morning thinking about this detail. The contrast that is given in this passage between King Uzziah and God. What is it that Isaiah sees and understands about God? Well, surely it's this. God is a God who endures. God is a God who lasts. God is a God who has been, who is, and who will be. Verse 1 states this, in the year that King Uzziah died, it doesn't just date when this vision occurred. It doesn't just date when Isaiah found himself in a place to say, yes, Lord, send me, I will go for you. It also helps us to see and to realise that rulers, authorities, powers, kings, people in our lives who are lifted up and exalted by other humans have a relatively short shelf life, don't they? Seasons come, seasons go. Situations change. Kings have a start date and an end date. But in the year that this king died, what did Isaiah see? The Lord still seated on his throne. That's amazing, isn't it? That God is a God who endures. Some of us will have committed to memory other passages of scripture which reveal the same truth about our God. Yesterday, today and forever, Jesus Christ is unchanging. God is not a God who we can depend on in a moment and is absent in the next. 
God is not a God who was powerful in creation but has abandoned this world. God is not a God who has come and displayed his goodness, his kindness, his love, his glory, his grace, his mercy in the cross of Jesus Christ and has said, that's it, I don't want anything more to do with you. God is a God who is still seated on his throne. He is a God who endures. So it doesn't actually matter which of those three things that I've mentioned now, uh, the train of the robe, the hugeness of God, the, the song of the seraphim, holy, 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 but glory filling the earth. Or whether this, this fact that God is a God who is still there, even when kings rise up, empires rise up and fall away. The first thing that happens to Isaiah in this passage is that he gets this vision, this sense of the enormity, the immensity, the greatness of God. But it's not just seeing God that happens to Isaiah, is it? He sees Isaiah, he hears what the seraphim cry out, and then he responds with some truth about himself. Verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. Wait, what? Woe to you? This is an amazing experience. How much we would love to be able to say that we've gone through the exact same thing, Isaiah. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Because Isaiah wasn't just seeing the King, the Lord Almighty. He was having something about himself revealed as well. Before any question is asked of him, he confesses, Woe to me, a man of unclean lips. I'm just going to suggest this morning that we live in a culture where this sort of thing is discouraged rather than encouraged. For anyone to say anything perceived even as negative, to admit a flaw or a failing or a shortcoming, to label anything as sin, even within the church, can be poo-pooed, can be seen as being hostile, can see, be seen as being negative and judgmental and hateful and so on. And yet here is Isaiah, confronted with the grandness and the greatness of God in lots of different ways. And he says, he states something true about himself. He confesses that he is someone who has unclean lips. That in his speech, in his confession, he is someone who has fallen short of the glory of God that he now sees before him. It's sad that we live in a world that consistently has to try and say that you are good enough, that you are great enough, that every element, every aspect, every facet of who you are and what you have done is fine. Because the truth is, none of us measure up. None of us ultimately measure up to the standard we even create and invent for ourselves. We certainly don't measure up to the standard that God expects and desires for us. 
I love actually that this passage just shows us that we have the opportunity to be open and honest and confess where we have fallen short, where our frailties have taken us. Yes, even where sin has been found in our existence. When Peter preached at Pentecost, declared the great news that Christ had come to live and to die and to rise to life again before sending his spirit to come and dwell amongst his people, that when the folks asked, well, what must I do to be saved? Peter was bold enough to say, well, first of all, you've got to admit that you need saving. When Isaiah was confronted with the goodness, the greatness, the enormity of God, he realized that he needed saving. But see, this is perhaps why folks accuse Christians and the church of being negative and hateful, because very often we don't get past that message. We don't get past that confession. In the scriptures, the confession is never made without the hope that God is a God who can do something about our shortcomings, who can make a difference in us through his intervention. There is hope for those who come into God's presence, see his enormity and recognize our smallness. The confession comes... And it is immediately followed by a God who intervenes. Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, it says. Verse 6, then one of the seraph flew. These are creatures who go around and do God's bidding. To me with a live call inside. Someone, a live call that he taken with tongues from the altar, where the sacrifices are made in the temple. He touched my mouth. And said this, see, this has touched those unclean lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. Why is it that we're afraid to admit certain things about ourselves? Why is it that we're afraid to confess certain sins? It's because deep down we we feel, we fear that we cannot be forgiven. The world would have us pretend like they are things that don't need to be forgiven. But isn't this wonderful news? Isn't this just typical of how God interacts and intervenes in the exact way that Isaiah sees himself as sinful? In the exact way that he sees and understands himself as having fallen short, God comes in, intervenes, and makes atonement. I am a man of unclean lips. Well, here comes this call from the altar, and it touches his lips. And this declaration, your sin has been dealt with, your guilt has been taken away. That's the joy of what we call the gospel, isn't it? That Christ has come and so fully, fully provided a way for us to be right with God, right with one another, right in ourselves, that he was able to declare it is finished. 
in the exact place where Isaiah was so acutely aware of his failings, God makes atonement. Wherever it is that we confess, Lord God, I am not good enough. God says, yes, but I am. I will provide a way. I will provide what is lacking. I will make you whole once more. And that's the background, that's the backdrop, that's everything that's gone on before we get to this place where God asks the question, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. You know, it's not a glamorous mission that Isaiah is going to be sent on. If we read on verse 9, this is what God says, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never be perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused and their ears dulls and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see and they might return and they might be healed. Isaiah's mission is such a strange one because his immediate audience is a, is a people who is going to receive condemnation and judgment. And there's going to be a lot of sorrow. The words of hope that Isaiah is going to be able to share is not for the people that he preaches to, but it's for those who come after us, for people like you and for me. It's an unglamorous mission that Isaiah is accepting. And I put it to you that you and I, those of us perhaps who are sitting this morning and are under the, the covenant of grace from Jesus Christ, those of us who live after Jesus' great commission to go and to make disciples of all nations, you and I who live in a place like Wales, we have before us a very unglamorous mission. We get to go and tell people about a saviour who died. A God who took on flesh and though he hadn't done anything wrong, was still rejected by his own creatures, his own creation. We get to go and tell people, you are not good enough. Totally counter to the culture that we live in and you need help from somewhere else. We get to go to places that aren't the stuff of great biographies, but that are just humdrum, boring, Welsh towns and villages. We don't get like Nehemiah or Daniel to stand before emperors, but just to live and speak in front of friends and family and colleagues. It's an unglamorous mission that you and I in Christ are called to be a part of. Jesus said that the harvest was plentiful, but the workers were few. And so the question for us is, will we go into the harvest that Jesus has prepared for us? Let's just take a couple of moments then, just to, just to think our way through that, that pattern of what has gone on here with Isaiah. And what, I wonder, is it the same for us? Do we ever find ourselves in a place to be amazed by God. Brothers and sisters, do we seek out, do we seek out God and his goodness? Do we set aside time and energy, effort and affection to be 
bowled over in wonder in Jesus Christ at how immense God is? Or do we just assume or, or hope or, or not even care at all that God might be wonderful to us? Too much of our lives we live as if we're just going to, by accident, fall into something profitable, fall into something good. I wonder what Isaiah had been doing really in ways of preparing this, but we know that we can prepare ourselves, can't we? To see God, to find out about him, to be amazed and bowled over yet again. To meet with God's people. It's part of exactly what we hope and expect to achieve when we gather together. We can read his word. We can spend time in prayer. Not asking for things, but declaring who he is. Our Father in heaven. Are we finding ourselves in positions to be amazed by God? I hope we are. If we're not, well, let's put ourselves in those positions. Are we finding ourselves in positions where we can be open and honest, acknowledge our struggles and our sins and our shortcomings? I think the more that we see of God and his greatness and his grandeur, I hope, the more we will be willing to see our own shortcomings, our own sinfulness, our own flaws and failures. Because when we do those two things, well then, joy, glory to you and I, there is a solution, isn't there? We find and we encounter Jesus who says to me, come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you peace. I will find you forgiveness. I will make you whole again. I will take you to the Father. I will bring you into abundant life. Jesus, who does it all for us, we will find the God who provides for us and fills us up where we are lacking. So we don't need, we don't need to be scared to confess. Do we find ourselves in positions where we can be open and honest, perhaps with one another, but certainly most importantly with God? Do we believe that we can be open and honest with God about our struggles and find grace and mercy in those very places. And are we finding ourselves in a place where we can honestly say, here I am, Lord, send me. Are we honestly finding ourselves in places where we are overwhelmed with God and his greatness? We're acutely aware of our own shortcomings. We feel and experience Christ filling everything up, making us new by his spirit and desiring to be used for his glory to be sent out. Can I just encourage you today? You're on some sort of digital device before you go anywhere else. When John's finished the notices at the end of this service, head over to 100, 100, the number, dot Camry, and find out more about this wonderfully exciting initiative, this wonderfully exciting thing to see a hundred churches planted in Wales.
Not everyone is going to go be a church planter, but everyone can be a part of it. it. Speaks about prayer and equipping and resourcing. Please, 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 when this service is finished, head over to 100100.cymru, find out more, and add your name to the list of people who are part of a really unglamorous mission. Can I give you a second thing that you can do in response to this? Next weekend, uh, March the 2nd, I think it is, is the Saturday, that I am part of something over in Llandavri in William Williams Pantakele Memorial Chapel, organised by a group which is going to be people gathering together to seek God and to think about how we can be folks who are together reaching out to unglamorous places in Wales. It's been organised by a group. Um, we've got some wonderful speakers and I'm sure it will be an encouraging time, but a, a challenging time as well. So maybe consider coming along to that. If you want to know about, more about that or to book in, uh, you can message me or you can head over to ergroupygrwp.com as well and come and be a part of that. But there we have it. Isaiah 6. This question, who shall go? Isaiah, send me. What had happened to him? God was bigger than Isaiah had ever imagined. Isaiah was smaller and more needy than he had at that point imagined. But God made a way and called him and Isaiah went to this unglamorous mission for his glory. Lord, help us to be a people who see you, who see ourselves, who see Christ as making a way and who see the mission and the harvest that you have in store. For your glory we ask. Amen.